Welcome to Geared for Growth. I'm your host, Mike Mortlock from MCG Quantity Surveyors. Today, I've got a very special guest. I would go so far as to say a national treasure in the property investment space. We've got the founder and CEO of Hotspotting, Terry Ryder. I have a great chat to Terry about what he's seeing for the next year, his predictions, and we also talk about the prediction season as we're hearing all sorts of economists giving their ideas about what the 2024 property market looks like. We also have a chat to him about some of the key fundamental drivers, what he looks for in a hotspot and a growth market, and then challenge also the notion of hotspotting itself and what is it about finding a hotspot and what is it that he's trying to educate his customers about when it comes to property. It's an awesome interview that's been long overdue. I've been wanting to get Terry on for a long time and I'm sure you're going to learn something from it. Here's Terry. Terry Ryder, thanks for joining me on Geared for Growth. Always a pleasure to talk about real estate. As I often say to people, the hard part's getting me to shut up. (laughs) Is it still a pleasure? Because uh, you've been doing this for quite some time, and I'm sure that, you know, there's a bit of trepidation for a podcast. You know, people like me are going to ask you the same sorts of questions. You know, where do I buy? When should I buy? And, you know, crystal ball me into financial freedom. Do you still maintain that passion for it? Yeah, I do. Um, I think it's because um, residential real estate is really important. It's, it's not so much – for me, it's not so much about people generating wealth. It's, it's about shelter, and it's important to everybody, whether they're renting or owning. And um, it's one of the most fundamental needs for human beings. And uh, how that all happens um, and how prices and rents uh, move the way they do, I find endlessly fascinating. So, yeah, it's it's – I never get bored by it. And, um, you know, sometimes I get asked by people, you know, how come you haven't retired? Well, um, retirement just isn't in my game plan. I don't ever intend to retire because I love it and I'm just going to keep doing it. Maybe I'll throttle back a bit, but um, I intend to keep uh, researching and writing about and talking about real estate as long as I am able. Well, I would like to send a message to the people asking you about retirement and say, knock it off, because as long as we can keep you as a national treasure in the property research space, we'll have you. Uh, so it's a sincere pleasure to, to have you on the show uh, today, certainly way, way overdue. Um, let's, let's start off with the 2024 prediction season, right? So we're we're into December as at the date of recording and all the economists are trotting out their percentages and they're ranging sort of between 1.5% um, from Oxford Economics, a very glass half full there, I don't know what their problem is, and uh, Louis Christopher's sort of 6 six to eight, Shane Oliver's at seven. Um, and with all due respect to Shane, who's a previous guest, um, he's got it wrong before, as have many of those. Uh, so I know we sort of said off air that, that you're not one to sort of throw percentages at things because I, I guess it is, it, it's, it's probably sort of unhelpful to the consumer, would you say? Yeah, I think I think all all the speculation is unhelpful um, and it's usually really wide of the mark. Um, for some reason that I'll never understand, uh, journalists always go to economists for the forecast and the analysis of residential property, and and I often wonder why because that they're not actually um, property specialists, and it's something they turn their attention to occasionally, um, but they also have a terrible, terrible track record in predicting um, 
housing price outcomes. Um, every year, um, they usually tend to um, forecast prices falling, as they did at the start of 2023. Um, or if they're telling us that prices will rise, it's usually pretty moderate, and that's what we're we're getting for next year, for 2024. It's uh, a mixture of moderate price growth from some or prices falling from from other forecasters. And the outcomes are always a lot more um, bullish than forecast by those economists. Um, the bank economists are probably uh, the worst forecasters in the country when it comes to housing markets. Yet they certainly still do get the airtime. Where, where do you think they're getting it wrong? Because uh, it, it seems reasonable to assume that they are highly educated people, certainly highly paid people. Um, but is, is property just fundamentally different because there are more sort of extrinsic things that, that are at play or is it the fact that markets move with uh, a level of certainty that, that sort of property owners don't have? I mean, that sort of always seems to be the problem with economists is that if people were acting in a reasonable way, they would do X, Y, Z, but people aren't always reasonable, right? What do you put it down to? Look, I don't think they get it. They just don't get residential property. I think the problem is that, is that they are economists and they expect everything, including the housing market, to fit with their economic models of how things sh should work. So what they're forecasting is what they think should happen according to what they believe to be uh, true about um, of how the world works economically. Um, mm. but, but real estate is, is a different animal and it's got it's got elements to it you, you can't fa factor into an algorithm or an equation like um, you know just just the um, the Australian ethic of home ownership. You know how do you put that into an equation? Um, mm. Australians culturally have this this great passion for real estate and this belief in its fundamental strength. You know it's the cornerstone of wealth for for most Australian families, and that doesn't seem to get factored into their equations. The biggest mistake they make is they seem to think that what's happening with interest rates is not only the biggest factor in determining what will happen with real estate prices, but in some cases, the only factor. Mm. So at the start of this year, they all forecast prices were going to fall 15 or 20% uh, because interest rates were rising. Um, and that was it. That, that was the, the extent of the sophistication of their analysis. And we said, no, we don't think that's going to happen because there are other forces in play which are much more powerful than what's happening with interest rates, and that's what's panned out. But I don't know that they nothing will shake them from their their economic theories and the belief that this is the way it should work. It's like um, I think Winston Churchill says sometimes they'll stumble over the truth, but they'll pick themselves up and carry on regardless. Um, <laughs> So um, some of those people you mentioned have terrible track records and forecasts, but I don't think they'll ever change because they're locked into their belief systems. Well, they've probably spent a lot of time and money developing these economic models, right? So there's a, a sunk cost issue if they start deviating from them. But given that point that you made about you know, 2023, we saw the prediction of house prices to drop because interest rates uh, were going up or went up. Now, on the face of it, that seems quite reasonable, right? Because people are not necessarily going to have that borrowing capacity that they've had. So that kind of does put a ceiling on, on prices. But you mentioned a myriad of other factors. I'm presuming things like the transaction volumes, you know, there's intergenerational wealth transfer. There's, there's all sorts of things at play. Why, why do you think that was a, a too simplistic way of looking at it? 
Well, first thing I'd say is they're clearly not students of history. If they think that rising interest rates means falling prices, they haven't studied history. I think of some of the most spectacular uh, residential property booms we've had in Australia, the late 1980s, when are you old enough to have had a mortgage in those times? I certainly I, was. I was. I was born in '82, so um, I would have been an early adopter to be a mortgagee in my <laughs> single digits. But um, I'm very interested in the history. Yeah, well, I, I had a mortgage in the late '1980s, and, and, and mortgage rates went as high as 17. You know, yep. they were double digits and rising and rising. Um, and but the property boom raged on until it finally came to a close. And towards the end of the 80s, at the start of this century, um, we had interest rates higher than they are now and rising, but we had a property boom. Mm -hmm. And again, this year in 2023, with interest rates rising, property prices rose in most locations, um, including by 10% or more in some of our um, our major capital cities. So you, you would think that they, they would see a lesson there, um, that, um, that maybe the theory of um, rising interest rates equaling falling prices is incorrect. And when you think about it, I know it's, it seems logical that rising interest rates would cause prices to fall, but they're not thinking it through. Um, interest rates are rising um, because we have a, a raging economy and the Reserve Bank is trying to dampen things down. The economy has continued to be very strong and resilient. Unemployment continues to be really low. People are still getting out there and spending. And so we have a a, a pretty strong set of circumstances, and it's in those circumstances that people are more likely to be out there buying real estate, notwithstanding the fact that uh, interest rates are rising. But they are rising because things are so strong out there economically. Mm. It does sort of seem like there's a, a couple of different narratives at play in the media, and sort of the the broad subject for this is you know 2024 predictions and and ignoring the media noise, right? But that's uh, that's a very easy thing to say. It's a difficult thing to achieve when they are so um, enthusiastic with their their commentary from banking economists and the like. Um, but it does sort of seem like there there's, there are genuine stories about people suffering cost of living pressures, and then we've got you know a third of people that are living in a home with no mortgage, and you know I've even seen some little commentaries are baby boomers causing inflation because they've paid off their house and they're spending all this money. Can we get them to to, to slow down? What what do you make about the the sort of the dual notions that there's there's quite a lot of money being uh, thrown around, but then there's also people that are really struggling on the on the breadline yeah I mean there's truth in all of that but um, I mean the first thing to understand is is that the objective of media and people who write in it or commentate in is not to help us and it's certainly not to inform us it's to um, um, to alarm us I think they, they want us to click on stuff um, mm. and that's what it's all about so you know I think that the vast majority of what's written and said about the housing market in mainstream media is misinformation, and it, it's, it's really bad. It's a real problem for consumers trying to make sense of what's really going on and what they should do, given all this misinformation that's constant, constantly assaulting them through mainstream media. And, uh, yeah, we do say to people, tune out that white noise in the background, but it is hard to do because it's so pervasive. You, mm. can't, you can't really avoid it, even if you try really hard to. Um, so what it's important for people to do is actually have good sources of real information and then do proper research so they they can be um, abreast with um, what's really going on as opposed to what 
um, mainstream media is telling them is going on. Um, look, um, there's all sorts of reasons why um, real estate demand in the past 12 months has been stronger than expected and prices have done much better than expected by the economists, I would add. We expected <laughs> them to do quite well. Um, you know, we do have that that large cohort that doesn't have a mortgage, um, yep. mortgage-free. Um, we have um, people downsizing, which is a, becoming increasingly a powerful force. Um, we've got um, first-home buyers who, you know, who find a way to get into the housing market, regardless of what happens um, and how hard it is. People find a way, and and increasingly, I think it's with the help of um, you know parents and grandparents, um, and um, um, just um, compromising. Perhaps um, you don't get into the housing market without um, making sacrifices and compromises. And increasingly, I'm having conversation with young people who um, they might be growing up in Sydney and Melbourne. They want to get into the housing market. They say, oh, I just can't afford to buy here. But what I do, I can do anywhere. And um, so I'm moving. Um, I'm moving somewhere I can afford to buy a housing market because I don't actually have to be in Sydney to do what I do. So that's yep. been an impact as well. So there's all these different forces. Um, we've got people coming in from overseas as migrants in record numbers, um, people moving about the country for various reasons. The trend we call the exodus to affordable lifestyle. All these things have an impact, and it's really quite hard to isolate these different forces in a particular market and determine you know, what, what's actually driving this. It's really quite a challenge. Mm. Well, it's a full-time job, I, I assume. Uh, and, you know, with respect to the media misleading us, we can go straight to the source with yourself at the moment. And the the question around kind of the mobility of the workforce, which is really kind of uh, a, a benefit that we saw with, with COVID, right? I, I remember hearing one of the big four banks saying they had a 10-year working from home plan, but they executed it in about 13 days. You know, the world is, is different for that. And um, someone actually suggested that I ask you about how, how the process of selecting hotspots has changed with respect to the mobility of, of the workforce. We obviously heard a lot about the, the sea change and, and tree change workforce, and then there's some argument that you know, people are now sick of the country and they're moving back. How, how has that created a challenge for you in forecasting? Look, it, um, not too much of a challenge. It's just a case of being aware of these, um, these, these changes happening. Um, I would say that... Um, there's a media again has misinformed us into believing that um, what the trend we call the exodus to affordable lifestyle was caused by COVID lockdowns. In actual fact, it's been underway for much longer. It's about right. technology and it's about people seeking a different lifestyle and a more affordable lifestyle. So Sydney's been losing population to what we call internal migration for more than 10 years now and Melbourne for five, six, seven years. So it all started long before COVID came along. COVID just made it more visible and um, alerted more people to the possibilities. Well, first they were forced to work from home um, and then they, they realised, well, hey, maybe we can make this permanent because we like it. It doesn't work for everyone, of course. Um, there is some evidence in what we're seeing that the the strength of that trend has waned a little. It, now, media likes to declare things to be over because they're like a dramatic headline. It's not over. It's still a trend. Um, it will continue, uh, but it's perhaps not as, as powerful right now as it was in the past couple of years. So 
it's just a case of being aware of those things because the, the underlying fundamentals don't change. What we're looking for is, is locations that have a strong and diverse economy. Economic diversity is really important. We don't like to recommend one-horse towns in terms of their economy because that makes them vulnerable. Um, we're looking for infrastructure spending as a big generator of activity in real estate and therefore growth. Um, we're looking for um, you know places that are growing their population and creating jobs, just just fundamental things. Um, and so some some of these demographic changes have to be factored in, but they're, they're not actually um, they're not uh, game changing um, factors. That we, we we're aware of them and um, we we see those trends. One of the reasons why um, we're a little bit ahead of the game than say media or, or um, some of the other research companies, I think, is because we. Um, we, we chart the trends in sales activity, whereas everyone else seems to monitor what is happening with prices. And we think prices actually take time to react to changes in the market. The change yes. in the market is is demand increasing or falling. And because we we uh, monitor sales activity, which is demand, um, we can see um, changes coming before it starts to show up in the media in the form of prices. Mm, interesting, because. Settlement date could be six weeks from exchange, right? And we've we've gone through a year where six weeks can actually price you out of a suburb. You know, it's it's been a crazy pace of of change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to ask you a question that I'm sure you're going to hate, but my listeners will hate me if I don't ask it. So better better for you to suffer on this one than me. You'd rather I hate you than your listeners yeah. hate you. Fair enough. Well, I, I just by, by sheer terms of volume. Um, <laughs> There's, there's more listeners, hopefully, than, than one. So that's the way I've, I've figured it out. Um, 2024, there's obviously markets within markets and you can't invest in the whole Australian property market. But when we see some of those predictions, I, I know we talked about you not necessarily wanting to throw numbers at it and, and your research is far more nuanced than Australia. But but what, what can you see that's happening in, in 2024? Which, which way are the tailwinds or headwinds blowing? Look, I think they're mostly positive, and you're right. Um, we we don't talk about the Australian property market, and that's one of the reasons why the economists and other forecasters get it wrong. They talk about Australian property prices as if we're one big market. Look at the size of this country yeah. and, the, and the regional differences. I mean, to think that we have just one market is just absurd. Um, so um, we're always looking at things regionally because we think property markets are local in nature. So that's why we're so interested in local economies. Um, and what's happening with infrastructure locally. Um, but um, I've just completed the latest analysis of sales activity. It's going to be the summer edition of the Price Predict Index, which will feed into our f- forecast for 2024. And we have, we also have at the front of that uh, report the winners, the losers, and the ones in between. Yeah. So um, I'm about to... When I finish talking to you, sit down and write those those summary sections. But um, there are more winners than losers, um, and there are some sort of steady ones in the middle. Um, you know, for example, the the three biggest cities have come very strong this year with their sales activity. So they're heading into twenty twenty four with a lot of momentum. Uh, Sydney, Melbourne, and Brisbane. Yep. Um, some of the regional markets, also regional Queensland, and in particular regional South Australia, never gets talked about because there's not a lot of population outside of Adelaide, but there are some markets there that are noteworthy and it's a strong market. Um, 
in between, we've got some some steady ones like like Adelaide, um, like regional Victoria, um, like Hobart, and the losers. Um, Darwin and Canberra have not got on board with this this trend of recovery and resurgence in 2023. Those mm. those markets are lagging um, because I think they have weak economies. Northern Church in particular is the weakest economy in the country at the moment. Um, and Perth, which has been the darling of the media for the last couple of years, still being written about as the boom market of Australia. But the evidence of the sales activity is that's now coming off the boil. So we think that that market's going to be um, cu- coming down a little bit um, from those peaks in 2024 so there's all these different things happening and within even within cities of course there are different markets and one of the trends that's emerged really strongly in the past 12 months and we expect to continue for the foreseeable future is that more and more people are opting for apartments for lifestyle reasons and for affordability Mm. reasons so um, we've seen um, extraordinary uplift in demand in um, inner city sydney inner city melbourne suburbs Brisbane as well, uh, shown up in Perth, in Hobart, where um, markets that are dominated by apartments have just had, had this big uplift in demand. And I think people are in the more expensive markets in particular are saying, look, we just can't afford, you know, if we want to buy in the inner west of Sydney, um, it's $2 million for a house, but we can get into an apartment for maybe 700000 in the same mm. suburb. And more and more people are making that choice. Downsizers are choosing apartments. First-time buyers, they like that lifestyle, low-maintenance lifestyle anyway. So that's that's a big trend that's emerging, and I think it's challenging that dominant paradigm. And I know you referred to it in a recent presentation, and you're right. Historically, houses on land have shown much better capital growth than apartments. But I think that may change to a certain extent mm. because more and, people, more and more people are demanding apartments. Mm. Yeah, look, I think I did say that that might – be the case forever or likely be the case forever. But now now that I sort of think about it, I mean, there's there's only so much land and, and people will always be drawn to the to the you know the hub of the, the city. Um, we know that we all have too much stuff. There's there's been a lot of money made in the self storage uh, industry, and 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 you know COVID gave us all a chance to kind of reset and rethink about our priorities and some. Some people it's minimising and downsizing. Others it's it's properties and those sorts of things. So that that is a very interesting trend. I wanted to pick up on something that you said, which I hoped that you'd reference as a as a lovely little segue for me, because at the the presentation we were talking about, which was the Pippa Melbourne breakfast, um, I shared some data about Perth being the darling and and. I mean, the data is WA, but 75% of West Australians live in Perth, so I, I sort of throw it around interchangeably. There is a little bit of nuance, but, you know, Perth is still winning the race. It's the highest um, monthly growth, the highest quarterly growth, and I think the highest yearly growth. And in our data, we, of course, showed that the prevalence of investors buying in WA has, has absolutely soared. Uh, and there's, you know... There's a there's a, a a few sort of worries that I have in saying anything about negative about Perth because so many people have jumped into that market. They're like, "What do you mean Perth's not going to go up?" But interesting to see that that you're you're seeing the 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 leading indicator, which is not the core logic monthly figures. They are still really really strong, but yeah. the leading indicator of the sales activity points to perhaps you know a January February or a March seeing a drop in that. Perth figure or that WA figure? 
Yeah, um, and that's why we monitor sales activity because we see it as a really good forward indicator, but there's a time lag and that's why it's valuable to know about it. You know, if you, if you know that sales activity is rising in an area and prices haven't risen yet because there is that time lag, you can buy strategically before prices do rise, but equally it works in reverse. So it's useful for people to be aware that um, no, there's been quite a marked fall off. These are the September quarter figures, um, whereas Perth has just been rising, rising, rising with sales activity and prices have followed eventually uh, for the last two to three years. But in that September quarter, it was quite a marked um, turnaround um, whilst um, Sydney, Brisbane and Melbourne were had a marked turnaround uh, in a positive way. In Perth, it was negative coming off the board, as it inevitably must after, you know. Yes. Gen- generally, the, these up cycles, they don't extend much beyond three years. Um, and, um, yeah, so we're suggesting to people that perhaps maybe there, there are better options in Perth, not just because, um, you know, we see signs that it's coming off the boil anyway, but, but it, it has been so competitive. It's been really hard for people to buy sensibly with due diligence there. And, um, you know, every buyer's agent in the country is piling into Perth and properties are, have been selling really quickly. It's been quite dangerous for people because anybody wants to be careful and do proper due diligence, they, they lose the property. Somebody buys it out from under their nose. So we're saying, look, look, there are easier places um, to go. I mean, you don't have to be in Perth. You know, it's not the only place that's got growth prospects in the country. And yeah. we always take a long-term view anyway. Um, and, you know, perhaps, you know, unfortunately, people um, are herd animals. Um, that's how, that's what drives a lot of the decision making for people who are property investors. So mm. they'll, they want to pile into Perth because they hear there's a boom on. Um, if, you know, the smart people would have bought there, say, three years ago before the boom started, having seen, read the signals. Um, so as I was saying to people, there are other places that have credentials for good growth long term. Maybe you should be considering those. Mm. It, it do, does make me always sort of think that uh, once you've heard about it, you're probably a little bit too late. But people want to see green shoots, right? They want to go, the market's rising. So I might have missed a couple of percent, but I'll get in and I've got the safety that I know it's an appreciating market. But, you know, how many percent are you losing? I mean, uh, there's certainly a worry that you're buying well and truly the top if you're in Perth now, right? It depends on which green shoots you're looking for. If the green shoots you're looking for is a report in the newspaper that prices are rising somewhere, that's the wrong green shoot. You want to be looking for the, the green shoots that appear before prices rise. And, and there are clues out there. You know, it's, it's in all sorts of other data. And, and um, it's one of the reasons why we chart um, every day. We're researching, um, scouring online sources, looking for information about major new infrastructure, you know, because that's a real generator. Um, you know, we, we sort of took the Sunshine Coast before it went crazy for, for three years with price rises. It was all on the back of there was so much significant infrastructure and planning and underway there that it had to have a property boom, and it did. Mm. Um, so those are the sorts of green shoots really to look for. Um, don't, don't, don't wait to be told that prices are rising because um, the smart people have bought before prices rise in those places. Mm. Now, your, your business hotspotting uh the clue is in the name your job is to find the hotspots or the or the growth locations ideally before they have been reported in the media as we talked about what what typically 
uh, qualifies an area to get the Terry Ryder tick of, of hotspotting approval. The Give for Growth Property Investing Podcast is presented by our business, MCG Quantity Surveyors. If you're an investor or a property professional looking to get the best tax depreciation deductions for yourself or your clients, please get in touch with us at mcgqs.com.au. It's our mission to help as many property investors as we can to maximise their claims and maximise their property education as well. Yeah, I sometimes think um, that hotspotting was probably not the best name for the business because in some people's minds, at least hotspot kind of implies um, short, sharp, sugar hit type. Yes. And we're not looking for that. Our definition of a hotspot is is a location that will outperform the market long term right? because of the uh, intrinsic nature of the economy. We're actually more interested in in the economy of a place in the property market. Now, our reports, our location reports, I spend more time talking about the economy and the infrastructure spend and the future prospects based on um, what's happening development-wise in an area than actually the property market because we think that's really fundamental. So we're looking for, as I said a little bit earlier, places with strong, growing and diverse economies. That, that's really important um, because those sorts of places are going to be performers long-term Good transport links, uh, good basic infrastructure, but in particular spending on new infrastructure. So we're excited about places like, say, Toowoomba in Queensland, where there's some really big and influential infrastructure coming to that uh, regional city. Um, It's already had some uplift, but the big uplift is still to come. And the inland rail link lobs um, there, because it's under construction now in northern New South Wales, heading towards Queensland. Uh, when the $1.5 billion hospital starts to be built and other big things that are happening there. Um, when um, Boeing, you know, who make really big aircraft and have never manufactured outside of uh, the United States before, um, when they start setting up their big plant in Toowoomba because it's got the new airport and the new rail link, then we're going to see you know, Toowoomba go to another level. So, you know, the smart people will be aware of all that and will be buying there now before prices really take off. I was actually just looking to transact in uh, Toowoomba, so we might delay the release of this. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's, it's important that uh, the consumer get this level of, of advice. And, I mean, that's that's something that we were kind of talking a little bit um, off screen is, is, is the power of, say, property researchers or let's say some of these big... Uh, property buyers, agents, or house and land package style people. You can have people green light a region and it feels like fundamentally change the, the metrics of that location, especially if it's a, a smaller population. Do you sort of subscribe to that view that, you know, one of your reports could, could actually, um, have a material impact on, on, on property prices or, or let's say a, a big buyer's agent that might do 50 or 60 transactions a month for a few months? Sadly, no, or happily no, um, depends <laughs> on how you look at it. Like, it would be nice to think we were that influential, but really we're not, and neither is anybody else. There's no one entity out there that can create a hotspot just by recommending a location um, because there's just um, so many voices out there and there's no one voice that's so dominant so influential that it can create a hotspot um, just just by um, recommending 
um, a, a future hotspot. Um, we, we have some influence, but it, it's not as massive as um, we would perhaps like it to be. Um, but m maybe that's a good thing because it, it, if it was the case, what you're suggesting, then we would have all the, this, this artificial creation of, of hotspots. Um, that doesn't happen. I think it's that the, the collect the collective voice, um, the, the building of more and more people suggesting a place um, is worthy of people's attention. But usually by the time that collective voice becomes so powerful that people, most people become aware of it, it's probably too late to get in at the right time, mm -hmm. um, which, is, which is okay because, you know, that old adage in real estate about um, it's not timing the market, it's time in the market that matters. I think that's so true. And I get a lot of questions about people about, you know, wanting to get in exactly the right time. And my advice to them usually is, look, if you're ready to go, you've done your research, you've decided this is the location for you, um, move now. Don't try and get the absolute perfect time to buy because no one rings a bell to tell you about that. It's very hard to do. Um, and five years from now, it's not going to matter if you've chosen yeah. the right location. That's a funny thing, isn't it? When you zoom out, these these big movements that you felt at the time tend to be tiny little blips. And it's interesting that you sort of uh, perhaps the the name of your business in, in hotspotting can be a bit problematic for you because I've sort of spoken on this show before is that um, the metaphor is that you can you can eat your dessert, but you've got to have your veggies first, you know, like mum and dad always taught me. And I always felt like the veggies were the plan. So what do you want to happen financially? What do you want your retirement to look like? You know, what what sort of income do you want to see from your portfolio when you sell it down or whatever? But then the dessert is, okay, well, now I get to buy something and it's the hot spotting. And, and I feel like... Um, that's far more interesting, obviously, but people don't get those sort of fundamentals right. And even yourself as as the founder of Hotspotting is saying, well, this is not, we're not sugar hit hotspotting. We're saying this is actually outperforming the market over a certain period of time. Do you, do you feel a palpable sense that people are like, Terry, I want to know what's going to go up 10% in the next six months and I'll redraw my equity and then, you know, there's Lamborghinis raining from the sky. Yeah, there's too much of that, unfortunately. I mean, you're absolutely right. And the way you describe it, the, the main course and then the dessert is a, is a nice metaphor for it. Um, we've got a, something we call the, the rider investment system. It's an eight step process, um, to carry people from starting out to get to the point where they, they bought a property. And step seven of eight steps is looking for something to buy and yeah. steps one through to six, all those preliminary things that you need to do, like understand what your objective is and then develop a strategy for achieving that objective, um, finding out about your borrowing capacity, understanding your risk profile, um, getting good advice from all sorts of different professionals like accountants, uh, maybe real estate lawyers, quantity surveyors, um, mortgage brokers, all those preliminary things that are the boring bits, but they're so, so important to have them in place before you go out there and start looking for things to buy. Because if you rush out there and get excited about buying real estate, you'll probably end up buying the wrong thing in the wrong place and maybe at the wrong price and get a bad result. And if you get the first one wrong, it's really hard to get the second one and the third one. But if you get the first one right, having put in the legwork to do all those preliminary steps, then that first one can be your leverage to get the second one and the third and actually build a portfolio over time. Mm. 
patiently. Um, and um, patience is um, something that not a lot of people who get excited about real estate have as a quality, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's that's a, a real interesting point. I, I think that the, the patience and the planning is is absolutely key and the, the property uh, is something that needs to come after that set of steps. So it's interesting mm. hearing that from you because obviously the hot spotting is is what you do, but understand that there's yeah. there's more to it than than just going and buying any particular location. And we say to people, build your team before you build your portfolio. They really need to talk to someone like you. They really need to talk to an, their accountant, their mortgage broker. You know, if, if you're buying the wrong entity, for example, by getting being in too much of a hurry, that can have really serious financial consequences for you. So you need to have that conversation before you sign the contract. Um, there's so many things you need to get in place first. Um, one of our um, Panel Partners members, his business, he refers to a brick-by-brick brick process. You've got to put all the bricks in place to have a really solid foundation. Yeah. And, um, yeah. It's another way, another nice metaphor for it. That's good. I'll steal that one. And and I think you're right. Getting the first one wrong became, a, a I suppose, a bit of a mission of the podcast is, is in, in our own little modest way is moving that needle that 72-odd percent of people uh, only ever own one property. And I think it, that it has to be the case that part of that majority not building a, a, a portfolio is because they do get that, um, that first one wrong. So, yeah, yeah. Ab- absolutely. And, and they're not willing to invest in information and advice. You know, um, people are willing to get a loan and buy, spend the big money on the piece of real estate but are reluctant to spend relatively small sums on those preliminary steps. And the mm. people who are successful um, understand that real estate investing is a business and with any business you've got to be willing to spend money to make money. And um, now we've just reviewed our year with the team online because like a lot of modern businesses, we've got people all over the place working remotely, some outside of Australia, various parts of Australia. And um, we've, we've had a quite a momentous year with a lot of expansion and mm-hmm. it took a leap of faith to be willing to, to trust our business and our, our model and our process and put money um, to take on extra expense yep. um, in the belief that um, the income would, would rise to match that and exceed it. Um, but having that willingness to invest in ourselves, invest in the business, invest in people um, is so, so important if you want to be successful. And that's what... I think it's a hallmark of successful investors. They are willing to invest in advice and information in themselves, but most people aren't, sadly, and mm. uh, that's why they get these these very poor results and you know, so few get beyond one property. Yeah. Well, let's hope that uh, we can change that one investor at a time. I'm now that um, we've sort of done that disclaimery part of all right. Look, hotspot is not the be all and end all. You do actually need a plan. There's a lot more moving parts to it. Let, let's say we've we've done all that planning and we're looking for a property that we're going to have some parameters on, right? We know what our maximum budget is. We know what sort of yield that we're wanting. 
when we go to some of these online platforms, it, it, it horrifies me sometimes, a bit like someone putting in like a dating profile, like I want to, I want someone that's six foot one or taller. But what if your soulmate is 5'11", you know? What, what, what if I say I want the population to be 35,000 or more, but there's the best property is going to be 33,000, you know, for performance? How, how, are there any sort of hard and fast rules that you set on a, on a property market that it's got to meet a certain criteria? Um, we do have general criteria, criteria and I referred to, to some of them um, earlier in the discussion. Mm. But, um, you know, there's no one size fits all because there are different strategies and we're not saying that this is the absolute right way to go about it. Um, you know, I quite, quite often get asked by people, where's the best place to buy? And I say, sorry, there's no right answer to that question. It depends on the individual. You could have 12 people in front of you all asking where's the best place to buy in those 12 different answers depending on their circumstances. What's important is that the individual investor has a set of criteria according to their objectives, which might be, I don't know, I want to retire by 50 and I want to have 12 properties and I want them to pay their own way, therefore I'm looking for high yields, et cetera, et cetera. So you need to have criteria um, which will um, help you decide where to buy and it's a useful process because the word I hear most from property investors is overwhelm. And what they're overwhelmed by most of all is Australia's a huge country. And where in this huge country do I find the right place for me to buy? I've got no idea how to even go about um, finding you know, the, the right spot for me. So I take them for a process of I'm in a strategy session with them through asking a series of very basic questions, which whistles down thousands of choices to a short list that's manageable, like five or six locations. And it will be dictated by their income, um, their borrowing capacity, what their goals and objectives are, what they already own, their stage of life. Do they have kids? Are they single? Um, which might dictate risk uh, for them. A young single person might be willing to take on more risk in their investing than someone who's 40 with with um, teenagers at school sort of thing. Um, so all of these things need to be considered. So the set of criteria is very much the preserve of the individual. And um, what we try to do is help people understand their own criteria, because a lot of people don't, um, understand their objectives and then develop criteria that makes sense. And it might turn out to be, well, okay, I, I want to be buying somewhere between four hundred and five hundred thousand and um, with a yield above 6% because I want it to be able to maybe pay its own well close to it. Um, we want we want growth. We want safety. Therefore, we're not going to buy in a, um, a tourism market or a mining centre. We're going to buy in a well-rounded, diverse economy, a regional centre with affordable property and above average rental yields. And suddenly, there's there's quite a short short list that might suit that set of criteria. Mm. Yeah, well, I guess. If you just look at Australia and go, all right, where do I buy? It, it's it's far too overwhelming, right? But if you can if you can bring it back to those those key things, then you you've got a shorter list and you've got a uh, I guess a, a bite sized chunk of being able to do the research on particular markets. And and even once you get down to that that level, there's there's usually not one place that's superior to all others. And I think some people tie themselves and nights find trying to find the absolute best place to buy. Um, you know, there's this new um, acronym out there following on from FOMO, fear of missing out. The new one's FOBO, fear of better options. Right, and some yeah. people tie themselves in knots. 
you know, I've got to find the absolute best place. And, and I say, to people, look, there is no absolute best place. You might, through your, based on your criteria and your search, come up with 10 or 12 places that are good to buy. You don't need to determine which is the absolute best. They're all good. They've all got good future projects. Choose one and go for it. Um, in the knowledge that it's not the, the last time you will buy, get that one underway, then start considering the other locations for your next one. Mm. Now, I'm sure that there's a, an aspect of secret herbs and spices to the Terry Rider system, but are there fundamental things that you're happy to share that you can see in a market that you know correlates with growth? We've obviously talked about and not wanting to invest in sort of one industry towns. Infrastructure mm. is a huge one, and, and that one sort of piques my interest because it's harder to find data on infrastructure. I mean, we can, we can all see the core logic stuff and, and the SQM stuff, but infrastructure is a little bit harder. So if you're, if you're teaching a beginner to be a hotspotter, uh, assuming that's that's possible to disseminate your knowledge into a short answer, what 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 are some of the key things? Look, honestly, it's it's not easy because there's no one place you can go and get that information, and and at the risk of being a little self promotional, that that's what our reports seek to do. Yeah. Um, the business started from the premises that um, people don't have the time or the knowledge to find all the information that they need to identify where they should buy. So we'll do that for them. We do all the legwork. We gather it all together. And the really big job is, is finding out about infrastructure. And we're just scouring media and online sources every day. We have people doing that, um, looking for, for clues of um, new announcements of, of projects. And we pull all that together and we put it in our report so people don't have to do the research, which would otherwise take them um, many weeks and months, um, even assuming they know how to do it. Um, mm. So, yeah, our um, our business model is, is taking the legwork out of for people and, and, and just telling you that this is where we think uh, the good places to buy are. And, and infrastructure is a really important part of that. Um, it's not the only part, but... You know, so many of the places that have emerged as outperformers um, over time are places that do have that element. The big infrastructure spend, the Sunshine Coast is a great example. They had more than $20 billion worth happening at one time and hospitals and the airport being expanded and motorways, um, the big medical precinct. Toowoomba is a great case in point right now. Um, a city like uh, Geelong, um, just outside Melbourne, has had a lot of infrastructure and, and new investment coming into it. Many other examples around the country. Um, Newcastle has actually been a uh, case in point. You know, it's um, and it's um, a, a slight diversion, but we're also looking for um, for, for game changing events or, 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 or big shifts in a place. Um, Newcastle and Geelong are great examples of economies. Um, that had to reinvent themselves because mm. the old economy died and um, media was predicting the death of these places. Um, but they have successfully transitioned to um, new and more modern economies. Geelong's a great example. It used to be about smokestack industries. Mm. Media was screaming that it was going to die, but it's transitioned to an economy where um, it's now about um, IT, it's about health, it's about education. Um, and... Um, I think Newcastle has also transitioned successfully away from those days. I think the late 90s when BHP closed down the big thing and it was considered a disaster, but it's, it's, it's managed to 
reinvent itself and is still an incredibly important regional city in Australia with a, a property market that keeps keeps on performing over time, helped by association with the, the nearby Hunter region. Yeah, yeah, well, I've partaken in a, a few wine trips around that, that region and uh, it keeps delivering. We talked a bit about infrastructure projects. Now, not all infrastructure projects are created equal, right? Because you could have, let's say, a billion dollars spent that's not going to employ a tremendous amount of people and then a billion dollars spent that's going to be a huge employer. A lot of people have been talking about, okay, well, Brisbane's going to explode because of the games and then there's been plenty of people who say, look, it's not going to be a bigger driver as what people think. How do you view infrastructure from the lens of is this going to have a really positive effect or is this just money that's not necessarily building those job opportunities that will translate into appreciating prices? Yeah, yeah, you're right. There are different categories of infrastructure. There, there are some that have a, a lot of jobs in the creation of them, but pretty much none once they're finished, you know, like motorways, for example. But they can have ongoing impact because they make a, an area more accessible. Um, that helps. The ones we really like are the ones where there are jobs in the creation of them, but there are even more jobs in running them. And, and hospitals and universities uh, fit mm. that category really nicely. And um, we often look for that because in in many um, capital cities and also regional cities, they tend to cluster together. So you'll find clusters where there, there's a hospitals, precinct, universities close by, like, um, like that um, uh, North Melbourne Carlton precinct. In, in in Melbourne, where there's the hospitals precinct and several university campuses, um, there's just endless demand um, for real estate, either by renters or buyers in those sorts of places. So that kind of infrastructure can be influential in an ongoing basis. Um, alternative energy projects, um, can have impact, but they're not as big an impact because there's actually not a lot of jobs in creating a wind farm and there's very few jobs in actually running them once they're finished. Um, they, they can have an impact, but it's a, a reduced impact compared to um, like a, a major new hospital, like the big one that's coming to Toowoomba or the big one that happened on the, the Sunshine Coast and is a gift that keeps on giving because it keeps on expanding. Um, something like that. Um, not only... Now, a lot of people working there, but a lot of very highly paid people working in a hospital. And people had to come from other parts of Australia and the world to live on the Sunshine Coast to work in that facility. And that really pumped up the top end of the market massively. Mm. Um, and so we saw the nooses of this world and Sunshine Beaches sort of having, you know, 100% growth in three or four years as a result of that. So those sorts of um, infrastructure projects can have uh, a very lasting and powerful impact. Yeah, I think that's awesome advice. Terry, thanks very much for joining me on Geared for Growth. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers.